You're listening to the Finding Unique Value Podcast with Jay Sparks. Hi, this is Jay Sparks, your host of Finding Unique Value. Today, I'm honored to be here with Mark Elliott, founder of Elliott Asset Management, a boutique investment firm in Boston, Massachusetts, where I also happen to be the principal. Mark is one of those very special people that can find these opportunities, and he's here to tell us about it. Mark founded Elliott Asset Management in 2006 as a radical departure from a traditional large financial services firm. Elliott Asset Management is intensely focused on research and out-of-the-box thinking, always looking for opportunities that the crowd has overlooked. He does not rely on outside sources for his research and typically looks for answers to questions that others are not asking but should be. For example, when people are trying to profit from rising oil prices by trying to pick the companies that will quote unquote win, Mark is investing in the raw materials needed to mine the oil, which benefits regardless of which company wins. His research and ideas have gotten the attention of large investment firms, and he has consulted directly with the Chinese government on economic policy. Mark has made a lot of incredible calls over the years, but I wanted to spend today on one of his first calls that was ever published to better understand his process that's produced some incredible successes. Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Jay. Good, good. Well, why don't we dig right in and, and start on that very um, first call, right, uh, after you formed Elliott Asset Management in 2006. If you can just take us back to kind of what you were what you were thinking and what, what idea was uh, at, the, at the forefront of your mind at the time. Sure. Well, uh, in 2006, uh, I had been working at starting Elliott Asset Management for several years already. And so I had already, I've always been following the various different markets and inquiring about uh, different opportunities. Uh, and in 2006, I'd already formed a thesis that there was uh, a bubble uh, that everyone now knows about, uh, but back then uh, it seemed I was one of the only ones speaking about it, a bubble in the housing market and in the housing debt market. Um, it uh, it was simply that uh, housing was, was too hyped and the economic value of housing, uh, the value economically wasn't up to the, the actual price value. For instance, where I was in San Diego, the average uh, house uh, mortgage was approximately 70% of the average family income. It was just uh, impossible to maintain. So obviously that's not sustainable and that's gonna change. And what, um, what caused you to start to take action on that, on that idea? Well, really, it, it's part of the reason why I started Elliott Asset Management is uh, I just wanted to I wanted to uh, employ the employ a lot of the reasoning that I had used already to help others. And back at that time, I wasn't very well connected to some of the movers and shakers in the industry. And uh, the way that I ended up taking action was actually harming my own business. Um, I had already made a number of calls uh, that got a lot of attention of the people around me, most notably in medical school. And I had a lot of people interested in investing with me. And when I registered in 2006, I just saw this as being the opportunity, you know, the biggest risk since the, the Great Recession in the U.S., and that it could be quite catastrophic to all asset classes. Um, therefore, uh, as I begun, I actually discouraged clients from investing substantial sums with me uh, and put them in ver those that did. I put them in very conservative hedged investments. Um, it was very hard to grow when you're telling people that they're spending too much money, that the uh, world's about to <laughs> the sky is about to fall and, well, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, you're not going to get me, that let me great stop you return. Right there, cause you, just, you just hit like three or four things. I got to slow down just for a second here. So the very, I'm going to skip back to a couple of points you made. You, you, you actually acted on something, as you said, that harmed your, your own business. So A, why would you do that? And B, how were you able to do that? Right. Most people, particularly starting a business, you're not awash in, in cash. Right. So actually you're doing things that are going to make it more difficult for you to make money for yourself, uh, you know, for your, for your firm at the time. So what, what was the thinking there? 
So I've always believed in doing what is right. And in order to do what's right, you have to have yourself in the right position to do so. So even though when I left medical school, I had a substantial amount of medical school debt, I worked very hard, uh, saved, didn't, didn't overspend, lived very frugally, and also, um, you know, did very well with my investments. First with the stocks and getting out before the, the crash. Uh, I had warned everybody about that as well. And then uh, finding every possible manner to buy investment real estate uh, back in 2000 before the huge boom. And uh, so I had enough income in order to be able to live modestly um, while starting my business. And, uh, you know, I had done very well with my investments right before Elliott Asset Management and had a lot of people that were looking to chase those returns. And I just didn't see a pathway to get there. So the only thing in my mind was to warn people uh, and uh, tell them that when the, the almost inevitable crash would happen, likely that would be a huge opportunity to invest and to please give me the money to invest at that time uh, that they would have sure. the cash. When you're saying they wanted to chase the returns, um, what, are you, what, are, what are you referring to? They wanted to put money in, in real estate at that, at that point? When, when... Yes, both. Well, people wanted to invest in real estate. Uh, I was offered uh, uh, to endorse several large real estate deals that would have made me a lot of money. I refused. And also, well, in medical school, I ran several funds for friends and family that had performed exceptionally well. And my friends from medical school had discussed this, shared the results with their new colleagues, that you know, now that they're doctors. Mm -hmm. And people looked at the return and made the reasoning that uh, they could continue to spend like crazy and keep their credit card debt and, you know, their other loans if I made them those solid double-digit returns per year. To which I replied, you know, with the markets the way they are, uh, investing aggressively, we could lose, you know, lose solid double digits. Um, you know, the numbers just didn't work. There wasn't those opportunities out there. All asset classes, in my mind, uh, just about all asset classes were overvalued. There, there wasn't a lot of opportunity uh, to invest. So, in what, what year was in your, what year was that? Roughly, that was 2006, uh, okay. 2006, 2007. It wasn't until late 2008 that I started to uh, dip my toe in the water, and early 2009 uh, really went aggressively into the markets. Got it. So back when you you said something else that that uh, piqued my interest, because you also said you you were offered to endorse some real estate deals that would have made you money, and you were living very frugally, so that would have been a great opportunity for you to for you to kind of move ahead a little bit uh, personally. Why did you refuse to endorse the deals? What what were the terms that you didn't think would? Uh, would Actually, the terms were very more? favorable to me. There were several deals. The two, there's several. Uh, Gosh, um, there was a 250-unit condominium complex that uh, that I would have had to have brought some of my investors into it. I would have got paid very well. Um, I, I said no to that. There were several. It was very popular to do what's called a tenants in common at that time, where people had very uh, highly appreciated real estate. They didn't want to pay taxes, so they would sell that real estate and move it into a larger development, an office building, a hotel, or something like that. And these ticks mm -hmm. were uh, almost always run by people with not-so-scrupulous ethics at very high fees and were highly leveraged. Uh, and I just saw them as uh, vehicles that were going to blow up, and they did. Those that invested in those, and there were millions and billions of dollars sloshing around. Uh, you know, people being, yeah, they had these uh, presentations in uh, Rancho Santa Fe where, you know, with free dinner and people would come and sign up for these things. And it was the best thing since sliced bread and they, they completely fell apart. Um, and then finally, so, so you, so you, 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 would yeah. have, you would have gotten a, like a, like a finder's fee, if you will. Right. So that's how you would have yes. made your money. But the people that you put in them, they, you were, you were not sure that this was a good opportunity for them, even though you. Were uh, I was sure. Uh, for I was sure it was a bad opportunity for them. <laughs> got it. Got yeah. it. Okay. And well, then, you know, that, that, yeah. that's unusual too that people would say no to something like that. If, uh, yeah, there was one other would, thing. Would expected to know. There was a life insurance company that uh, recruited me, 
and I met with a recruiter um, and ended up speaking to the president. It's a very well-known organization. I won't mention the name, but very, very large organization. And they were excited because I had my real estate license, securities licenses, and insurance licenses. And they wanted me to uh, get people into option arm mortgages, which I would make a large commission off that. Um, they're, they're now known as the... Uh, uh, I can't remember. They're the uh, worst of the subprime loans, and people with prime credit were even taking them out. Negative amortization, and then putting that money from the refinance of their house into a variable annuity, um, which also I'd get a commission from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it was uh, another thing that I saw is they would lose their house. <laughs> yeah, it's another opportunity where the people in the middle are making money, but the uh, actual investors are are not. Exactly, um, and they're not aware. Yeah. So, so you saw that the real estate market was was overheated. Everybody, of course, is feeling very smart about their real estate investments. And if you're really smart, you were, you know, taking loans out on what you owed, uh, what you owned, and then you know buying more real estate, right? Um, so you were definitely going against the uh, against the grain back then. What was the uh, what was the reaction to your to your clients? Were you getting new clients at this point? In 2007, no. were you working with your existing? Okay. The 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 reaction was overwhelmingly negative. I remember one time uh, walking with my friend, uh, you know, now a doctor from medical school on the beach. We ran into a group of his friends, and it ended up being a group of about 25 people. And I literally stood in the middle of them and told them why real estate was going to collapse and uh, yep. the economy was in a dangerous situation. And at that point. Everybody thought it was Goldilocks economy. Everything was wonderful. And wow. uh, I didn't have one person agree with me. And I spoke about wow. it quite regularly, spoke out. And uh, mm -hmm. people just told me I didn't understand that San Diego, everybody wants to live there and the weather's perfect. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that that uh, I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah. So what, what, so what did you learn from that, that particular experience? Because it must have been maddening to know in your bones that you were right and that, uh, you know, of course you couldn't have predicted the extent that things would have moved after that, but, but, um, you know, taking a very logical uh, approach to that, what, what did you learn with how you need to communicate or who you need to work with going forward? You know, I, I realized that I needed to develop long-term relationships with people that knew me very well, like my best friend from medical school. I had already yeah. been through it in medical school with the tech market, you know, uh, the, the hype of 1999. I was mm -hmm. there in medical school giving my talks about why tech stocks were overvalued and real estate was undervalued. And at that time, everybody thought real estate was too much work. And why would you do that? <laughs> and, you know, that's when I bought my house in Boston <laughs> that yeah. after it burned down, it still sold for a million dollars. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's incredible. So, again, that that is something that is very common just based on our biology. Right. We're always looking for the. Um, so the things are going to get us in trouble um, and ignoring <laughs> everything else. Um, yeah. Well, well, that's, uh, that's incredible. So you're, you're again, a pattern that's soon to be um, repeated. You are saving when other people are spending. Um, you're getting ready to spend when other people aren't even saving. They're still spending um, in, in a different area. Um, how um, did you get the, the capital you needed to make the investments that you that you wanted to. Did you use your own money? Were you using you know, your your clients' money? Did you find other sources to start when you, oh. when you thought it was too ridiculous to stay out and you really wanted to start buying? It sounds like it was probably 2008. Is that when you started buying? Um, yeah, I I wish that I I came from a background where I had you know great amounts of resources available to me. <laughs> Uh, you know, similar to Warren Buffett, he had, you know, started his fund and he had a decent amount of money to start. I had nothing, uh, actually below nothing. Uh, leaving med school, I had hundreds of thousands of debt. Um, it was very, very, very uh, difficult situation. But I did have fantastic credit and had uh, the property in Boston. And uh, it was late 2008. Um, it and uh, I could, uh, you know, the markets were starting to get jittery and I mm -hmm. could see where credit could, uh, you know, soon dry up. And I actually had a, a bead on that. I was talking to the mortgage brokers and a bunch of companies were getting out of the business. And I knew this would just dry up liquidity left and right. I got a teaser offer from my credit card 
Uh, and because I went to med school and all this, I had a limit of like 40000 on that card. And they offered me something like 1.99 or 2.9% for life. Um, so I took that uh, that cash advance saying <laughs> money is going to be very hard to come by. This could be some of the best investment opportunities uh, in my life, maybe the best coming up. And if I don't take advantage of them, then I'm probably going to kick myself so hard. Uh, and if mm -hmm. I lose 40000 at 2% or whatever it was uh, that I could pay off over time, I'd rather take that risk, um, you mm -hmm. know, because the just the risk to reward, I thought, was was going to be phenomenal, and it was. No, so I don't suggest the kids back home to do that. <laughs> no, sure, sure. Yeah, I know. Well, this, this is interesting to, to be hearing this because, you know, typically um, this is not a good – um, a good reason to run up your credit card, right? So could you, could you take me through some of the, I, I guess the way you're looking at it is, is probabilities, right? What, what's the probability that I spend this 40,000 and it'll go to zero uh, quickly? Or, and what's the probability this 40,000 will go to 100,000 or more? How did, did you look at it in, in that specific way? Or were there other ways that you were looking at you know, the risk reward I'm, relationship? I'm always calculating risk rewards on just about everything that I do. Um, mm -hmm. With the capital that I took from the credit card, the decision amounted more to a an opportunity cost. Um, I could foresee and was correct that the credit markets could dry up and that liquidity. When, when credit markets dry up, liquidity becomes very, very valuable. And so for me to spend 2%, $800 a year, to have $40,000 in liquidity that I would be able to allocate to potentially very high rate of return investments, to me, it was worth that that cost um, at that mm -hmm. time, uh, a very low loan fee, so to speak, particularly on an unsecured line of credit. <clears throat> um, and in late 2000, uh, was it late 2008? There was already some preferred securities that I was monitoring, and I had been monitoring these companies for years. There was one in particular it was Entertainment Properties. They're they're uh, one of the largest landlords for megaplex movie theaters. And uh, they had the the top. They have the top uh, megaplex theaters in their markets. They were actually hitting record revenue, sales, profitability. 3D movies were about to come out, but they were all of a sudden that real estate became a a four letter word. Basically, um, everybody was selling, and their their uh, their stock price plummeted. Their common stock price plummeted to a fraction of what the value of their assets were. And I looked at their convertible preferred shares. <clears throat> um, the number one uh, holding that I bought at that time, and I allocated my money without using leverage at first of that 40000 into them, They had uh, I had run all kinds of risk analysis and had found that if they wrote off all their other investments, entertainment properties, and if they had about a 60% decrease in revenue on their megaplex theaters that were having record revenues, and they tend to do so during recessions, that they would still be able to pay the preferred shares and uh, you know at par, at $25 per share. And in late 2019, I think I paid an average of about $15 to $16, and they had a dividend of 9.25% on the $25 dollars and they were convertible into common stock. So the dividend that I was receiving annually on those preferred shares that I saw as quite safe was somewhere around 15 to 16% without counting the, you know, presumed accretion back to par. So that was late 2008. Great. So um so using your $40,000 loan, you're paying 2% on this investment you're making you know, 9%, not including any appreciate, uh, price appreciation. It's making more right? like 15, 16%. How, how was that? I, I, I missed that. The dividend was 15 to 16%. It was 9.25% oh, oh, oh. on $25, and I paid 15 to 16 it. approximately, Got somewhere it. around there. Okay. Oh, so that was, yeah, so that that's, uh, that's <coughs> incredible. And that was, and that was, was that just a portion of this money, or was that a... Uh, that was, was that most everything? of the money. I, I put it in a few other preferred shares, uh, mm -hmm. but I, I knew that company very, very well. I'd been following it for years. Um, so, you know, and I ran the, the numbers. Um, it, it was very easy to understand. And to me, it was surprising that uh, that Wall Street 
could could neglect could be throwing out this stock at the prices that it was and i did the more conservative option i wanted to buy the common shares but i bought the preferred mm-hmm. shares because you know i needed to be more uh, less risky with the money mm-hmm. interesting so um you you said this a couple times now you know the credit markets were were drying up what specifically were you were you looking at that uh, looking at at that time, and do you, and do you think that there's any any correlation to what you're seeing right now? Have you seen uh, the, right now, the different it's very very different. The credit is quite quite available. Uh, you know, the economy's been doing well. There's there's a lot of confidence, both in consumers and in uh, executives. But back in late 2008, um, there had been, I believe, already uh, just recently. Uh, Bear Stearns uh, was Bear Stearns or no no it was um, yep. Yep, it was yeah it was Bear Stearns. Stearns yeah Bear Stearns went under um, that created a huge liquidity crunch fear of of uh, counterparty credit risks um, and also of course real estate was declining in value and there were many properties that were underwater and uh, people were losing their jobs and you know, uh, people were getting their credit lines cut on their credit cards. They were getting their home equity lines cut. They didn't have the money to, you know, they weren't able to continue to juggle their mortgages. They were losing their homes. Um, housing is, as I'm sure you're aware, a very central part in the economy. And if housing dries up, then people don't buy furniture. They don't buy services. They don't you know, hire people to fix things. They don't buy new cars. Uh, and, uh, Lots of people end up without work, so you know, it's really a vicious cycle um, uh, that uh, you know created a liquidity crunch that also created immense opportunities for those that had cash to invest. Sure, sure. So how did? Because now I'm not sure how these are connected. And so you see the um, how did you see the opportunity then in entertainment properties? Because seems like that might um, stay down for a while, right? If people don't have the money, they don't have the credit. Um, why would they be using those, uh, you know, those well, services? entertainment properties, the, you, the, the value of their real estate itself is one thing. The value of their business is another. And I looked at it in both mm-hmm. components that the real estate would have value over time. The economy would improve again and, you know, things would get better as it did. Mm-hmm. But the value of entertainment properties in the movie theaters were in that it was a resist that it's actually a, uh, recession hedge. <clears throat> One of the few bright spots, for instance, during the Great Depression were movie theaters. Um, it was a relatively new event at the time, but for a nickel back then, you could go and spend an afternoon in air conditioning and, and get away from your troubles, um, you know, mm-hmm. be in a fantasy. That's the same case yeah, that yeah. happened with other recessions since then. So people will stop going to Disneyland, they'll stop going on their cruises, and the, they'll stop going to the theater theater, and instead they'll go yeah. to the movies more because the movies are eight bucks, twelve bucks, and you know you're you're good. Sure, sure. So um, you realize people would not have the money to spend, but there's still some areas that they would spend it and focus on uh, the companies there. And you found one that was actually very cheap relative to where um, where you could purchase it. Absolutely, and I'd already done the stress mm-hmm. testing. They were they were making record revenue and record profits, mm-hmm. but ir- irrespective of that, uh, I did the stress testing. And as I said, if they wrote off most of completely down to zero most of their other investments outside of their core movie theater holdings, and mm-hmm. I, I said if they have fifty percent vacancy in the shops around their movie theaters, and if they keep if they only get sixty five percent or so of their revenues that they have now for movie theaters, after all of those uh, stress case scenarios that they would still be able to make the payments on the preferreds, you know, that's pretty darn extreme. That's a huge cushion of margin of safety. So to me, I saw it, it's a relatively, at the price that I was buying at, it was quite a safe investment. Mm -hmm. You know, what people consider safe or not, you can can argue, but... but, Sure, uh, sure. No, but I can see if someone didn't do the research, right, they would... uh, um, be kind of putting that in the category of all these other services that we're, we're probably going to be less likely to uh, to earn money based on the the, the credit uh, situation. So, did did you get a better response with this particular idea than you did when you were talking about uh, real estate? You know, 
year or two prior, or was it still the same thing? Like nobody else was doing this, or this is different. Um, well, uh, I don't. Yeah. So I, I had gone from warning everybody about it to <laughs> I sent out a newsletter where I told people that I was starting to see some good values, and I called some of mm -hmm. my clients. And I said, hey, now's the time to give me those millions of dollars that you were offering me several years ago. Yeah. I only had one client respond, and he opened an account with Interactive Brokers, which I needed to oh. uh, have it at Interactive Brokers because they're low cost of leverage, which I anticipated yeah. we might actually use, which I had never used before and very rarely do. Um, but uh, he put $5,000, and this is a multimillionaire that makes millions of dollars per year. And he said he would get 200000 to me by December of 2008. And I told him I wanted to buy these preferred shares and also Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac five-year uh, notes that mm -hmm. were yielding something like 7-plus percent. And also some uh, GE Capital Markets uh, long-term notes that were at over 8%. Uh, and mm -hmm. I said, the Fed's going to cut rates down to virtually zero, and they're going to stay there for many, many, many years. So put that 200000 in and allow me to leverage it some, and I'll make you millions off from just that 200000 mm -hmm. or better yet, give me a couple million. But he actually yeah. only ended up putting 5000 in <laughs> until the market yeah. hit a peak, <laughs> like sure, over a year sure. later. Yeah. Well, that's, the, that, that's why, right, the, you know, the average investor – makes, you know, 2 to 3% in the mutual funds. But the average mutual fund is making, you know, 8 to 9%, right, for that very reason. You know, when, when things are going yes. up, you feel good. So you add money, and then when things are going down, you feel awful, and there's bad news. So you tend to either withhold investment or, you worse, you take it out at, at the loss. So you do the exact yes. opposite. Yep, it is um, human nature, and it goes against our ability to be successful in investing. Yeah, so how, do you, how, do you, how are you able to consistently – get around that because already you have two really incredible examples here of you going against the tide and that rewarding you and anyone who was smart enough to listen to you handsomely. So um, yeah. why is it, why is it that you're different Mark than the, the rest of us in these situations? Anyone looking back at this, I think is absolutely going to agree with everything you said. Everything you said is completely fact-based. And even you even understand kind of psychology, both the investor psychology and the human psychology behind the decisions, and you're taking that into account too. Yet it seems like um, it's very rare that someone would would listen, right? I think it comes from a combination of factors. One, I've been interested mm -hmm. in the investment market since I was a very young child. Um, mm -hmm. I was a bit precocious and was reading my father's investment uh newsletter since around the time of around five or six years old and oh, i bought one of those stock kids. when i was reading. <laughs> yeah yes i was <laughs> and uh, i continue to follow it uh throughout throughout my life um right through med school i you know i enjoyed reading the economist more than i did reading uh my <laughs> medical text um but i think also med school helped me in the ability that you know i'm uh, practically uh practically have my md from a top school um, and, uh, you know, I studied psychology, psych psychiatry, um, mm -hmm. and uh, human behavior. Um, but I think it's mostly yeah. from having a lifetime experience, having followed the markets. And maybe my parents dropped me on my head or, I don't know, I'm wired yeah. a bit differently <laughs> than most. Yeah, well, you're definitely wired differently, right? Because it's not um, – or all of us would be making these decisions right alongside you and there would be no opportunity. Right. Exactly. So, um, yep. you know, maybe maybe that's a you know, maybe that's a good thing for people that are will listen to you. Um, and, uh, you know, I wish I'd, I'd met you you know, back then. Right. I'd be in a very different situation today. Um, but uh, I know yeah. you now yeah. and I get to work with you. So it's even even better. I get to see it up up, up close. And uh, well, what's personal. different Jay, is that most yeah. people say that uh, I've been told this throughout. It's been now decades <laughs> that I've been investing yeah. and uh, calling things and, you know, only in the last decade or so that I've had the money to really make a lot for myself. But people mm -hmm. have said consistently through time, they're like, wow, you do a great job of this and you've done a great job. I wish I knew you a few years ago. <laughs> but then when the next thing happens, they don't act or they don't do anything yeah. to act, you know, so that's yeah. people need to act. Yeah. Well, well here you are a, a few years ago, right? Because if they don't do anything. They're going to be right where they are now. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's good to see you have more, um, more people that are um, that are listening and and uh, actively interested in, in what you're in what you're doing. Um, so let me get back to the. So you had the entertainment properties, and then you you also um, found uh, um, some real estate, right? That was 
incredibly undervalued. Could you talk a little bit, a little bit about that? Because that's also well, a, yeah. Well, know, first, kind of all uh, at the same time. Yeah, continuing the entertainment property story, the markets in general and entertainment properties preferred continued to decrease right and through to the bottom of the market, which was about 10 years ago today, uh, mm -hmm. March 9th, uh, two, uh, 2009. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. so what I bought, I believe, initially at maybe 16 and change, I believe the low trade was $9 or a little bit less. And mm -hmm. I kept buying it all the way down and employing leverage uh, eventually, which I generally don't do, but it was the time to uh, go all in. Um, so why, why, why uh, in this time? Because I know, I know you don't like to, like any good business person, you don't borrow money unless you really have to or there's a real good reason, because there is some times when that is a really good thing, right? And why was this particular case good compared to the other situations you had seen where you didn't use leverage? The risk to reward again. As the price decreased, yeah. Uh, and the fundamentals of the business stayed strong. Uh, doing, you know, simplifying it, the the returns that I could get would have were ast absolutely astronomical. Uh, when I bought some of the lowest price uh, bonds, uh, excuse me, not bonds, uh, preferred shares, they were paying me a current dividend of around 25% at the the low, uh, maybe a little bit higher than oh. that. And so if I leveraged those three to one. Uh, I was making on that $40,000 investment uh, $30,000 a year, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. and so that's, that's somebody's income and I have only risk is the 40,000. If it goes down more, uh, you know, the, the, I get margined out. And uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it was an opportunity for me to set myself up for retirement with only 40,000 and with, you know, <laughs> very measured risk. Yeah. Yes, the risk gets higher yeah. when you uh, leverage up like that. But again, these were preferred shares. And I I believe that if they had been rated by a ratings agency, they would be triple B minus. And I believe the rating agency later did rate them at double B plus or triple B minus. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's incredible. Um, so you were, again, the other thing too you said, which, which is not uh, typical of a, particularly the, the, uh, um, the average investor and in that you were, you were buying, um, all the way down. Now, if you like it at $10 and then it's selling at nine, you're going to like it even more, right? Which, which, which you'd expect. Um, was there a certain, uh, would there have been a certain line where you would have been nervous that maybe you'd miss something or was this something that oh, you, you had already decided before you even started or would, or would invest any more? You already were, were very confident. I had already decided, uh, I'd already decided and was confident in my numbers. However, when the price started to approach about half what I thought was a good deal in late 2008, yeah. uh, it was certainly nerve wracking. And, uh, yeah. you know, the leverage was getting to the point where, you know, I could have started, you know, it was not too far from starting to have some margin calls on March 9th. But yeah. on March 9th, you know, I had a, a gut check. It was very, very, very difficult. But that's when I wrote the newsletter where I said uh, I thought it was the, you know, that, uh, the extreme pessimism that we saw could spell extreme opportunity. And that's when I encouraged mm -hmm. and called every one of my clients. And I had actually gone and met every one of them in, in uh, earlier March and late February and said, now is the time to go all in. And you mm -hmm. have to have that conviction. You've done your research, you see the numbers and mm -hmm. <laughs> you've got to move through. For me, it's strange. It's actually more strange that people wouldn't act at times like that and they will at the yeah. top of bubbles when the numbers make absolutely no sense. I think that's a better question to ask. You know, why are people yeah. investing when real estate in China, for instance, right now, real estate, you buy a million dollar uh, apartment and you might get 2% cap rate. You know, why, why are you buying that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's what yeah. people did in, in real estate in America back in 2006, seven. Sure. But sure. Uh, nobody okay. would yeah. buy it when I was there in Vegas buying it when, Without using leverage, I could get a 25% rate of return on the houses that I bought. That that was insanity to me. Mm -hmm. So. And when when and when did when did you start to see that in Las Vegas? And what what prompted you? Were you were you there on uh, just uh, vacationing, or were you uh, living there? No, no, <laughs> I, I was uh, scraping by. Uh, and had all my money in the stock market, but I was doing research on the real estate market and following the mm -hmm. trends of foreclosures and uh, uh, 
uh, foreclosure process and could see that it was really coming to a crescendo. So I specifically looked for markets that had been hot in the past um, that would be decent markets in the future and that would likely be, uh, frankly, suffering the most from the downdraft. Las Vegas stood out for me, one, because it had been one of the fastest growing metropo uh, metropolitan areas in the United States for like the last three decades. And uh, the mentality I just assumed of a lot of the people there were risk takers and that there were a lot of second homes uh, and a lot of new building. And that also the economy could be quite cyclical uh, in an extreme downturn with the gambling but there was huge amounts of infrastructure there that would be utilized even if in offhand chance that the gambling halls went out of business, those billions of dollars of infrastructure would find other uses. Um, so there would be a, a need for work, at least worker housing close to the, the workplace. Um, so I did research online and could see there were certain uh, communities in Las Vegas where the houses had been selling for almost $400,000 just a few years back that they were selling at auction for uh, sometimes under 20,000 uh, for the exact same house. And I was not buying at auction initially. I went to the auction when nobody was there. There was only two other people in the, the room uh, yeah. and I was trying to learn it. There was nobody to teach you. Um, and I ended up buying on the open market initially. And, uh, you know, I was buying, I ended up buying houses for 40, $50,000, um, uh yeah <laughs> so how did 40, you 50,000 and renting them out for $1200 a month <laughs> wow so um if i can just step back just a little bit so was las vegas the most extreme example you saw in the country or was it the most extreme example was, that was close to you cuz I, I know you were in southern california I, at that point right yeah southern california wasn't as bad as vegas there were some areas that were very attractive but Vegas is where I could afford to buy houses with cash, and there were so many houses and so few people chasing them. I also was interested in Florida. I went to Central Florida, and there were phenomenal deals there, and I loved the demographics of, of Florida and the long-term outlook for Florida. I went to the Gulf Coast. Oh, my gosh, Port Charlotte uh, was crazy. But I, I was my base was in Southern California, was in uh, San yeah. Diego. I wasn't a multimillionaire at the time, not even close. Yeah. And I didn't have a lot of money behind me, so I needed to be in an area where I could afford. And in yeah. Las Vegas at the time, uh, hotels, they were virtually giving them away while I was uh, looking for the properties. And uh, I bought my first home quite quickly, and I, I used my cre other credit card for <laughs> my first home. Yeah. Even yeah. when you were, yeah, even when you were traveling there, um, you were able to get discounts. So you were even watching your expenses then. Oh even yeah, you were going yes. there to, yeah, okay. Oh so, no, I stayed. Yeah. I stayed in the <laughs> least expensive. Uh, yes, of course, I, I did get comped at some of the casinos though, because they were comping everybody that played. Uh, so you you found uh, these incredible um, uh, values. You you had some cash. You didn't have a ton, but you. You didn't spend on things you didn't need to spend on. You lived very frugally. You found the best deals and you put as much money as you could. This is one of the rare cases where you're actually using um, either credit or, or some sort of you know, some sort of loan. Now, did you also, at this point, were you able to get more money from the people that you were um, serving from an investment standpoint or other people, or is this still too early for them to want to uh, Still too this. early. It was a little mm -hmm. over a year of me asking them and encouraging them before I got mm -hmm. others to start investing. Okay. Now, did you do you, do you get paid for that, or is that something that is done as a, you know, uh, you were just nope. Helping? That was something that was done just to help. It was the best investment out there. <clears throat> I encouraged people to take money from my accounts to buy real estate at that time because I thought it was the best mm -hmm. risk to reward tied with a uh, you know low interest mortgage. Mm -hmm. So, you know, always do the right thing. Eventually things come around. It might take a while. Sure, sure. No, that, that's incredible. Now, when you did get um, uh, some more people interested in the, in, the, in, in the real estate, did you help them buy, um, you know, several units or homes or just one? Or how, did, how was that structured? Like, what were you, what were you trying no, to do? No, there were a group of friends. Uh, I, I helped a number of people on one-offs, but I was – 
I was a central person in the purchase of approximately a hundred homes and I brought in a bunch okay. of other people too. So I, I, I ended up, you know, being, being the catalyst of buying many hundreds of homes in, in Las Vegas area and elsewhere. But I myself ended up at my peak with interest in, I believe it was 27 units. Okay. But you were never able to put together some sort of uh, uh, fund or real estate trust oh, where you did this? Uh, yes. I, I actually made efforts to create the first uh, single family and distressed note uh, uh, fund in the U.S. Uh, and I had become well known in China and actually had uh, had uh, quite a few um, uh, quite a few interest or quite a bit of interest in very large investments from China. I met with mm-hmm. uh, some folks in Silicon Valley, had some indication of interest there, and uh, I actually had met I, I had met with uh, the Trump Organization and uh, had an agreement to represent them and their distressed properties uh, in uh, Vegas. So how did you get introduced to the Trump Organization? You're um, uh, an individual who uh, is doing things on a shoestring. You're, you're, you're finally, after a year, able to get some other people to start to follow your advice. You're helping them organize it, but most cases directly. It's just kind of these are the things you need to look for, right? And then how does the Trump organization come into play here? Well, I was one of the earliest aggressive investors in real estate during the downturn and was quite Mm -hmm. vocal about it and uh, was trying to shake some things up to create an investment fund. I had become well-known in China, had been published in several prominent uh, news outlets there, and had a position within a government organization that was quite lofty, prestigious, and very unusual for a Westerner to be in the role that I was in. So I utilized those things as well as I had uh, moved into an apartment in city center at MGM, the the ultra luxury development there, right near the the Trump Tower. And I inquired with MGM about bulk purchasing their units. And I showed them who I was working with, showed them my articles and such. And it turned a lot of heads. Uh, And also at that time, you have to consider there weren't many people looking to buy real estate and there was a lot of need for liquidity. Everybody was hurting. Mm. So MGM Mm -hmm. was on the verge of going out of business. So they wanted to talk to anybody that had the remote opportunity to bring them money. With the Trump Towers, um, I worked with some brokers that I had bought a bunch of real estate before and I showed them that I had the ability to purchase a bulk lot of their their real estate. Um, and I actually met with Trump Jr. at one point very briefly. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, the, the person who was in charge there, I can't recall his name, but uh, he, he was really in charge, not Trump. Uh, they didn't offer me a good enough discount. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I told them, I said, hey, listen, you've got hundreds of units. These would sell very well in China. And they're, you know, with a visa program uh, that later a bunch of investors took advantage of, but I would have been one of the first to do that with the visa program Mm -hmm. that they had for investors and, you know, class A real estate and Vegas and luxury and on the cheap. It was a slam dunk to do. Um, So uh, that's how I got in the door. Wow. So you had the big big idea even then, even though it was starting uh, something relatively small. That's, uh, That's incredible. Now, Take a step back again. You 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 um you had um and we this is probably a topic for a different uh, a different podcast. But you know you you have this relationship with with uh, the Chinese government, which is which is very very um, interesting and in how that all came about. But seeing that you you had that, what would have needed to have uh, have transacted in Vegas for you to 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 take advantage of that? Is that like a, another trip back to China to well, be able to do that? And, and, and oh, I, well, I had an office point, in China. I had an office in China. I was flying back and forth all the time at that point. Um, no, I, it, it, due to the influence that I had in the position that I was at, it wasn't the Chinese government that would have invested. It was yeah. There was uh, the Bank of China um, Wealth Management Division uh, in mm-hmm. Shanghai. Their senior VP um, had offered to put me in front of his investors, which were several billion mm-hmm. in expendable and uh, other investment managers there. Um, it, it's hard to describe uh, 
in detail, but if you become well-known and uh, connected with a prominent government institution, and at that time, President Xi said that that was the most important project in all of China, it really gives you a lot of credibility. And also, the numbers didn't lie. And over there, people were excited about real estate and America. So it you know, I was I was a different person and very respected. So it, it didn't take a lot for me to open doors there. Right. Um, and wow. there was a lot of liquidity uh, sloshing around, you know, so to tell mm-hmm. them, sell your place in, in China, that's making you 2% and that you're going to lose after 75 year lease because you don't own it and that it okay. could crash and uh, that you buy in America and that you can get over 20% without using a loan and you own it forever. And if there's political problems in China, you can get on a plane and come to America with this this visa. And I'm like, how much would you pay for an American uh, green card? You know, half a million? Well, you yeah. get you get it for free. You know, so yeah. it was very easy. And wow. a lot of people use that idea later on to raise funds for 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 less uh, profitable projects. But I would have been, uh-huh. you know, the first or one of the first. And then. Um... So at, at that point, and that was what, 2013? 2012, that, um, uh, I found a tumor that I had to have removed uh, that could have been uh, cancerous and life-threatening. So I took took a big step back. And then, you know, 2000, early 2013, you know, things were starting to get busy in the real estate market and move, move up mm-hmm. a lot. But I saw a lot more opportunity still went to re- reignite, to uh, get things back in order. And that's when you know, the world fell out from under me. So got it. So that's when you got um um got exposed to some some chemicals when you were recovering. Is that the uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, my the okay. fires, you name it. Yep. You got it. so you took some time some time away from the from the day to day investing. Um but at some point, um, you know, a year or two after that, you actually um, ended up, uh, and your investors ended up exiting most of the properties, I would assume, or do they still own them to this day? No, um, it was early, what was it, early 2012 when I mm-hmm. wanted to start bulk buying real estate at the, yeah. it, I, w- I got approved with Fannie Mae actually to bulk buy directly from Fannie Mae. Um, I, talked to my inve- to the to the people that was that I owned the properties with and uh I had there were so many properties out there to buy and I wasn't an experienced you know I had to learn on the fly I ended up yep. narrowing down the property choice using some figures that were somewhat arbitrary in that uh I didn't have time to learn I had to learn as I went along and I bought a lot of properties with swimming pools uh, and yeah. I thought, hey, these are going to be valuable over time, and it's a differentiating factor. They were a pain in the butt. And so yeah. I told uh, the people that I bought with, I said, let's sell all of these properties and take mm-hmm. the money and go to auction. And they said they wanted to buy over 200 properties. I said, now is the time. Things are getting heavy. I hear, you know, I just spoke to a Blackstone exec the other day. They're asking yeah. me what I'm doing. <clears throat> um, and we sold the properties and then they didn't uh, fund anything. Uh, they thought it would be many, many years before the real estate market came back in Vegas. And I told them otherwise, oh. but uh, I didn't get a lot of traction. And then, uh, so I went for seeking the outside investment more, like I told you. And Oh, sure, sure. But, but even, even so, um, in that, you know, roughly, was that four year period or so, give or take, um, they made some, you know, you had positive cash flow from day one, and you had some incredible return because of the levels that you purchased, right? Not oh, yeah. Sold it, yes. where you, you bought at good prices, and that, that's really where you, uh, you know, limit the, your risk the most. You have the least amount of capital yes. exposed, and you have the greatest opportunity for the upside. So, um, again, a, a very common sense approach, but it's not uh, done often. Um, mm-hmm. For the reason you said earlier, people are much more. Uh, confident when when they they see all the all the good news and all their uh, you know friends and colleagues are doing that, doing a certain yeah uh, certain I ended thing. up keeping uh, I think ultimately with the the sales that we made I ended up keeping seven properties wholly in my name in Las Vegas mm-hmm. and I had another seven units in Boston uh, and mm-hmm. to me that was enough and uh, yep. but when I got sick I couldn't manage anything. Uh, you know, I had expenses and I couldn't even breathe. So, you know, keeping track of tenants and stuff was, was hell. 
Yeah, yeah, no, but still, you had um, you were able to make a lot of uh, you know create a lot of options for yourself because of uh, because of that, you know, especially starting in the in the hole in debt, uh, coming out of graduate school or medical school, and then um, turning that into a big uh, you know big positive net worth over a few years and living living uh, you know frugally and, and investing wisely with any any money you either had or any access to uh, um, to credit that you had. So that's uh, that's really an incredible story, and uh, I think you're you're being very uh, humble at, at how much work you did, but um, you kind of glossed over a couple of things. I think were were probably I gotta think you were working you know day and night during some periods, right? Just analyzing things because of the volume, or was that not that? Oh sure. That well, no, I of, yeah. for me the people say, say that I work a lot. I do, but there's no. Yeah there's no clear line. I don't clock in at eight and clock out at five. To me, the information is my work and I enjoy processing and analyzing the information. So I'm Mm -hmm. all the time, you know, even if I'm not in front of a computer screen, you know, my mind is working on things. I'm thinking about how this piece fits with that and what would happen here. (laughs) You know, Um, I'm always working on something. Yeah. Well, any, every, every good business person is right. Um, uh, and it, but the, the key is to get something that you that you like, so that it's um, uh, it's not uh, it's not drudgery, and you can sustain yourself through the times when things do get difficult. As every you know, every business has its difficult times. Um, mm-hmm. Wow, this is really uh, really incredible. I, I, I have uh, probably a hundred more questions for you, but I, I think this is a lot to take in on the uh, uh, on, on the first round here. And this is really just the first two of many really incredible. Uh, calls that you've made, but I wanted just to highlight a, a little bit of, of your process and how it's uh, it, it's consistent. It makes a, a lot of sense. Any good business person follows essentially the same the same process that you follow. You just happen to look at many more opportunities because you look at you know everything that is uh, right now publicly available, and uh, it, it's really amazing. And, and having uh, worked with you directly the last few years, it really is incredible the amount of work that goes into finding one of these gems. Everyone also always likes to talk about it after the fact, but no one likes to do the, do the work. And uh, finding is one thing, but then implementing the idea is, is also not always cut and dry and easy, right? There's a lot of things still you had to, you had to overcome. So um, definitely looking forward to working on uh, finding the, uh, the next big idea with you and, and sharing it with our, our loyal uh, followers in, uh, in real time. Um, is there anything else that you want? Any, any closing comments on this first uh um, first call you made that uh, that I missed. No, no, I, I think uh, we we hit on two two major events, and there's, there's quite a few more to go through. So I look forward great, to discussing great. it with you. Excellent, great, and thank you everyone for listening to Finding Unique Value, and we look forward to the next time. Bye for now. The Finding Unique Value podcast is sponsored by Elliott Asset Management. We help successful entrepreneurs create wealth outside of their business. To discover the five ways successful entrepreneurs become intelligent investors and grow wealth beyond their business, visit ElliotM.com slash webinar.